Good morning, and thanks for being here at City of Hope Church this morning. Uh, we're going to start a sermon series in 1 Peter. Uh, about once a year, I, I like to go through a book of the Bible just to sort of uh, hold me accountable and keep me, keep me contained, but it, it is subject to change because sometimes the Holy Spirit just does, does these types of things, and I may move in and out, but I'll come back to 1 Peter, and we'll get through it at some point. Amen? So we're going to start in verse 1, and... The sermon series is going to be called Exiles, and it'll make more sense as we get into it because Peter addresses the people that he's writing to as exiles or sojourners or even aliens in a strange land. And this first message is going to be called Hope in a Hostile World. But 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, here's what it says. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Let's pray over this word this morning. Father, we thank you so much for your presence, and I just sense that you are here in our midst. And God, we believe in that promise that where two or three are gathered together in your name, there you are in the midst of them. And so, Lord, I pray that by the power of your Spirit, God, you would bring life to your Word, and, God, that there would be demonstration of your Spirit and power as your Word goes forth to transform our hearts and our minds. And I pray that you'd use me to speak exactly what I need to speak over this, th these next few moments, God, as we unpack your Word. And, Lord Jesus, just continue to work in our hearts and in our lives and in our minds in a powerful way. I know there's somebody here this morning, God, that you want to speak specifically to and do something in their life. And so I pray, God, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. So Peter starts this book, and the first, the first word of the, what we read is Peter, right? Peter. And that is the name that is given to this man. His, his, his name was, was Cephas, and it was uh, a name that... that that Jesus gave him because Peter meant rock in the Greek language and he told Peter upon this rock I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it now Peter was a man that honestly he, he, he's a lot like us like we can relate to a guy like Peter for the most part because he's he's down to earth he's kind of like a blue-collar redneck you know what I'm saying he, he, he's not necessarily you got Paul if you're reading the Bible you got Paul and Paul's he's kind of like me he's up here sometimes you're like he, he'll say a bunch of stuff and you'll be like I don't know what he said it sounded good but but, but it was a little bit too heady, and he's over here translating Aramaic for fun, and Peter's out, you know, uh, running a trot line and skinning a deer, and a, and a country boy can survive kind of guy. You know what I'm saying? That, that's, that's what Peter, and Peter says dumb stuff a lot. Peter gets himself in trouble. He's pretty wild. And so we can relate to this guy. So he's writing a letter, and most people are thinking, like, Peter, can you even write a letter, dude? You know, like, is this possible? And, 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 but he's deciding to write a letter because Jesus Christ, I think if you look in Scripture, you look at men that Jesus came into the life, and he absolutely transformed who they were. He did it with Paul. He did it with Peter. But he does it with all kinds of different men and women from various backgrounds and he makes them something completely new and so Peter is living in a time when it's a lot of difficulty going on but he's a normal guy writing to some normal people but here's one of the main themes throughout this book is they are people that are dealing with some intense suffering 
Like life is not going well for everybody, especially Christian people at this time. Matter of fact, he writes about fiery trials that they're going through during this time. And some people say that when he says the language fiery trials, like it, it may not even be a metaphor because during that time Nero was the emperor. And what he, what he did, there was a fire in Rome during that time. And he actually blamed it on Christians, so get this, so that he could take Christians and he would apply like some sort of... A, an oil to their bodies, nail them to a cross, and set them on fire in his garden as a form of persecution. And he did that as punishment for the fact that he claimed that they started a fire in Rome. And so he's, he's using it maybe not even as a metaphor that now they are currently going through fiery trials being persecuted in this place. And, and he's dealing with these questions that have honestly been around forever. Maybe you've asked this question. If, if, if there is a God, and if God is all-powerful and God is all-good, then why in the world does bad things happen to good people? People ask that question. People still ask that question. Christians still ask that question. And see, this is not a question that Peter was sitting back enjoying life asking. This was a question that Peter and his other fellow Christians, they were living they were worrying about, listen, if God really is who he says he is, if Jesus has really been raised from the dead and we're going through this, you know, what, what's the deal here? Because if God is who he says he is, why would we have to endure so much suffering on the other side of Jesus' resurrection? Why wouldn't he just set things right? Why wouldn't he just fix this? And here's the thing, in this life, as you all know, there's a lot of questions that we just can't answer. We simply can't get to the bottom of. But Peter's going to work his way through this, working through some questions. And he starts out, let's read it one more time, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, notice who he's writing to. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in all those different cities. Bithynia, as Jeremy says, I went to a girl, I went to a school with a girl named Bithynia, you know. I didn't know. But he says elect exiles. Elect means that they are the chosen people of God for a specific purpose. Exiles is a word that literally means aliens alongside. So he's calling y'all aliens, but you all realize that aliens is not just like a creature that lives in outer space. An alien simply was somebody who lived in a foreign land or a stranger in a strange land. He's saying you're chosen by God, but I realize you have been exiled and you live not just in a different country that you grew up in, but you live in a different world altogether than what you were designed for. You are citizens of heaven and you now are exiles and sojourners in this world that is broken and led by demonic powers and principalities. And then he says that they're a part of the dispersion. Now the, 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 this name elect exiles is a name that actually they gave to Israel in the Old Testament. They were God's chosen people called to show forth God's glory in the world. But what happened? They rebelled against God. They did not obey God. And they were exiled into a place called Babylon so when Peter writes this book at the end he actually says that the, we're writing to the woman that is in Babylon the woman represents the church Babylon represents this false demonic world system and that's what we are we are the chosen people of God that have been exiled into a false demonic world system but get this he says you are of the dispersion the dispersion the word there is diaspora it literally means that a, a, a sower took seed and scattered it out into the field so basically what 
what Peter is saying, look, you've been chosen, and I know it doesn't look like things are going well, but do you realize that in some sense God has allowed these things to happen and for persecution to come to you so that he could intentionally scatter you throughout the world so that the gospel could go forth? In other words, you need to understand that sometimes you are God's chosen, and just because you are God's chosen doesn't mean things are going to go the way you want them to all the time. You may be in a job. You may be sent to a place. You may be in a place right now where you don't want to be in and it's dark and you say, man, how can I get out of this? What, what can I do to get out of this? Surely God doesn't want me to go through this time that I'm going through. And God is saying, no, I've scattered you into that area for a specific pers- purpose because there's nothing but darkness growing up and I need some new seed to be planted. So you could be in the place you're in as bad as you hate it for a very specific purpose and it may be because you're God's chosen. It may be because you're God's chosen and elect that have been exiled for such a time as this to do something in a dark place that will not get done otherwise. God is not afraid to send us into some difficult places. You remember the parable that Jesus said when he came back and he said, Look, man, I hid my talent because I knew you were a hard man. Y'all ever said that to God? Lord, I knew you were a hard man. I knew you would ask me to do something that I wasn't comfortable doing. And I'm promising you this, for the glory of God, He will ask you to do something that you're not comfortable doing. He will do it. Because He wants to get glory for His name and He wants His power to be made manifest in you. And if it's only by your power and your strength and your knowledge and your wisdom, well then you're never going to become a channel through which God's power can flow. He needs somebody at the end of themselves. You're not, you are citizens of another country. And listen, you are not to be privileged people here on the earth. This is not your home. Sometimes I think the American gospel gets us twisted up and we think that the whole reason we are to serve God is to get good things and nice things in this world. This ain't your home. This ain't your dwelling place. You are sojourners and exiles, aliens in a strange country, strangers in a strange land. You are odd here, folks. Like when the world looks at you, they should say, these people are weird. They don't follow our values. They march to the beat of a different drum. They are odd. This world, matter of fact, Jesus said, if the world hates you, remember, it hated me first. It rejected me first. It didn't understand me first because I was marching to the beat of a different drum and I was not walking according to the values of this culture. I'm living for a different world. And so this, he, he's trying to get this in. He even told his disciples, he said, look, when I leave, y'all got to understand you're going to be persecuted. People are going to hate you for my name's sake. They're going to reject you. Uh, you're, and, and right now, good news is, guess what? Right now, we don't experience much persecution. Sometimes I read about like what Peter went through and what some of the apostles and the disciples went through and Christians throughout history. And then I think about the difficulties I've had over the past two weeks. And when I sit and think about it, honestly, it's hilarious. Y'all know what I'm talking about this morning. I mean, like the worst thing that happens to me is every now and then somebody says something bad about me. <laughs> and it's like one person. And I get tore. I can't believe they said it, Lord. The persecution. You know, and, and we, get, we literally go through little to nothing in our lives. And we make it some of the biggest things that we have ever imagined because honestly we've been sissified in our culture. Somebody amen me this morning. Is that politically correct? We've gotten a little soft. We've not understood that the difficulties that we have pale in comparison to what could be coming in our lives. And I'm afraid of what would happen to us as followers of Jesus when the pressure really turned up. But see, Peter's trying to prepare us for what could come. 
Y'all ever seen this meme? You'll put that picture up on the screen. Sometimes this meme would show up and it says, be this guy. That's a little bit pixelated, but it's the best image I could find. You see, everybody is giving praise to Hitler, to the the Nazi regime and empire, and they're, and they're, they're giving him honor, but he's sitting there with his arms folded and crossed. And I remember seeing that. See, this guy is different than the world. He's not marching to the beat of the empire's drum. You understand what I'm saying? He's choosing to say, no, I'm not going along with what culture says. I'm walking by a different set of values. I'm believing something totally different that culture rejects, and I'm willing to take a stand on that. I'm not, I'm not willing to compromise, and I'm going to do this. And it's interesting because this guy, his name was August Landmesser. I actually read an article about him because I looked, this meme came to my mind, looked it up, found an article. His name was August Landmesser, and here's what happened to him. He was a member of the Nazi party, and this was a Nazi party rally and what happened was he actually started dating a Jewish woman and when they found out he was dating a Jewish woman and going to marry a Jewish woman they revoked his marriage license and they cast him out of the Nazi party well they got together anyway had a child and then when they got pregnant with a second child they fled to the border because they were going to start persecuting them they caught them at the border going into Denmark and when they caught them at the border they put her in prison and they put him in a concentration camp Now, while she was in prison, she gave birth to her second child, and then they put her in a euthanasia center where she died. The children were given over to other uh, German leaders, and they, they raised the children, and they went through the war, and he ended up being drafted into the war, but he uh, fled from that, and nobody knows where he ended up. His wife had died. He lost his children forever. And in 1998, one of his girls ended up writing a book about what took place. But what the point is being, see, there's some intense suffering that we can go through in this world. There's some difficulty and some challenges that people go through. And even even right now, there are challenges that you are going through. And as as lightly as I try to make of some of them, they still feel difficult to us, don't they? They still hurt. They're still painful. And we work through that and we have questions. God, why would this happen? Even this morning when I'm talking about people that God wants to save, some people have such a hardness against God because they're, they're, maybe they had some abuse in childhood or, or their father mistreated them in childhood or maybe they were abandoned by their parents. Like all of these things could happen and now they're wounded and they wonder, if God is good, why has this happened to me? And so this, this happens, but see, he's resisting this. But one of the things that separates the people of God from the people of the world most distinctly is how they respond to disappointment, pain, and how they have hope in the midst of suffering. That's one of the things that distinguishes Christians from the people of this world more than anything is how they actually go through loss and pain and suffering. And rather than getting angry and bitter at the world, they actually see hope in Christ Jesus. And and Peter even said, look, you're going through such a hard time that people are going to ask you, why do you have such joy and peace in the midst of the suffering you're going through? And he said, you need to be prepared to have an answer. You need to be prepared to tell them why you have joy in the midst of suffering. And here's what he ends up saying in verse 2 and 3. He says, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, Peter, in the midst of their sufferings, reminds them of God's great mercy. Because it's easy for us to think, man, you know what? 
like I'm doing what God's asking me to do and things ain't going my way and this just doesn't seem fair. Like it doesn't seem fair that wicked people get dealt a good hand and life goes well for them but then I'm sitting here and things just ain't going that well for me and God, and here's the essence of religion. The essence of religion is I'm a good person so God you owe me. I do good things, I go to church, I pray so God you owe me. Anybody ever lived in that world? The essence of the gospel is, I'm an evil person. I'm a wicked person under the power of sin and death led astray by the demonic forces and in sin and irretrievably lost. But God in His great mercy has chosen to chase me down, pull me up out of the mud and the mire, set my feet on a solid rock, forgive me, wash me in His blood, put His Spirit in me and give me an entirely new life. And in this life I will have tribulation and I will have suffering, but this is not the end. This is but a short period of time, and that is the gospel, that one day He will come to restore all things, and that should generate hope in our hearts. And so He's saying, we've been born again to a living hope. Hope is what you look forward to on the other side of pain. What gets you through hard times? Like, for example, you know, how many of y'all, you school teachers and principals in here? You got a lot in here, right? There's several of you. Right now, I know how you feel. My wife is a school teacher. I know how all of y'all feel. I listen to you talk about it. The only thing that is getting you through at this point is the hope of summer break. That's the only thing getting you through right now. If you didn't know that there was a summer break coming, you might give up in despair. You might throw it in altogether. Is anybody amen me this morning? Like You know it's true. You know it's true. I, Mr. Stubblefield back there, he's like, hallelujah. But he's a principal. He got to work through the summer. I don't know where he's at. You know what I'm saying? Like it, it, It's bad. But we are born again to a living hope, and that hope is real. It gets us through some things. It pushes us through onto the other side. There was a guy, I don't know why I've got the theme of the Nazi prison camps this, this week, but I do. Victor Frankl, he, he was imprisoned in Auschwitz, and he wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. And he noticed while he was imprisoned in Auschwitz in a, in a concentration camp, he looked at different people and how they were getting through it, and, 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 and he noticed different responses. And he basically said that there were some people who actually responded to the pain that they were going through by becoming more brutal themselves. He saw people that were being mistreated and hurt and put to death and lost their families, that really what it produced in them was anger and bitterness and rage, and they started to try to get power over even other Jewish people, other brothers and sisters. And he said, so some responded by becoming brutal and cruel themselves, but then he said others would just give up. Now notice, he said, said, usually this happened quite suddenly. The symptoms of which were familiar to us camp inmates, he said, we all feared for this moment in our friends. Usually it began in the morning when the prisoner would simply refuse to get dressed or wash or go out to parade grounds for inspection. No threats, no entreaties, no beatings had any effect. They just laid there and nothing bothered them anymore because they no longer had hope. Many many held on to the hope that if they stayed alive and they got through it, their health, their family, their achievements, their fortune and position in society would be restored to them. And that was their hope, that one day we'll get out of here, we'll get our house back, we'll get our families back, we'll get our money back, we'll get our job back, and it'll be fine. But after liberation, many came back to their homes and found that all those things were irretrievably gone. 
Many of them went into deep depression and even committed suicide after having survived the concentration camps. Their hopes had been on the restoration of these things, and they'd been shattered. But he said there was a third type of person that he noticed, and he said the ones who truly overcame the prison camps had a fixed reference point beyond the world. Beyond anything they could get in this life, they had a fixed reference point. And as Christians, that's the thing. We have to have a fixed reference point that is beyond anything that can be taken away or anything that can be given to us in this life. Like, we want blessings and we want good things. And, you know, even the psalmist said, I would have fainted unless I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I believe we serve a God that wants to show us goodness in the land of the living. But I also believe that we have a God that transcends circumstances so that sometimes His goodness is actually revealed in the midst of your worst pain. Sometimes your greatest revelation of who God is and your greatest joy and your greatest peace comes through some of your darkest hours. And so God has different ways of revealing His goodness to us in this life, but He ended up saying that they held on to something that was out of the grasp of death and out of the grasp of destruction that the Nazis could never touch. And He said this, Life in a concentration camp tears open a soul and exposes its depths and its foundations. And this is what Peter is trying to say. He's trying to say trials and pain expose where your hope is. Trials and pain expose where your hope is. And that's important to understand because there's nothing, you know, you could go through this life and many people do. I mean, eating from the silver spoon, having it made, no trials, no real suffering. And then all of a sudden, you you realize I've never even trusted God one time in my life. I've never been pushed into a corner where I had to reach for something beyond myself because I had it made in this life. You know what I'm saying? And everything went perfectly and everything was flawless. But there's something about the nature of human sinfulness that when things go well, we don't need God. I don't know why that is, but God knows and God understands mysteries beyond what I can understand. And trials and pain expose where your hope is. And some of you are going through pain and you're going through trials and you're going through suffering now. And it is exposing where your hope is. Now, for some people... Their hope is, is basically in their situation improving, right? And we believe that our situation can improve. But it could be in your marriage. It could be in your finances. It could be with your job. It could be with your future. And what you're believing God for, it could be with an illness or something like that. And you're thinking, you know what? I will have hope, that, but I want to say I'm, it's, it's in my situation improving. And, if, and then it gets to a point. But what if it gets to a point where your situation doesn't improve? You don't get a better job. Actually, you end up getting less money. Like, you still battle this illness. You still battle this sickness. Maybe you don't get Other people get healed around you, but for whatever reason, you've not experienced healing just yet. Then, then you experience loss, and, and, or, or maybe some of you young folks, you know, you find that perfect man, turns out he's trash. You know what I'm saying? He mistreats you. And then you're looking for another one, and that don't work out. And then you finally give up, and you say, you know what? All men are trash. Anybody amen me? Like... And then you get it bitter and you get jaded and, and you're like, nothing, nothing good's ever going to come, so you enter into despair. But see, what he's saying is, we have a living hope and this hope that is in Christ Jesus is something that circumstance cannot touch. If things don't work out, if I don't get the job, if I don't get money, if, I, if the Lord don't send me the right person, I still 
have a hope that is beyond my circumstance and it does something in my life to push me through what I'm going through because my purpose in life is not those things. Sometimes God will give us those blessings and He wants to bless His children. I have no doubts. But those things are not what shake our hope. Because it's something, it's, it, it, we have a reference point beyond all of our circumstances. I got a reference point beyond my job. I got a reference point beyond how much money I make. I got a reference point beyond whether I suffer loss or, or I have to experience death or suffering or if something terrible, a tragedy happens in my life. I've got a reference point beyond that. And I've watched people go through intense suffering, intense loss. And it's like in the middle of that, somehow or another, it's like it points them to Jesus even more. They realize, they realize I've got to lock into something beyond this life. And it shakes them to their core. And it breaks apart all of the false dynamics of their faith. And here's what Peter says in verse 3. He says, according to His great mercy, He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for you. He's saying there's an inheritance for you that's kept in heaven. It's undefiled. It's unfading. He says death can't touch it. Sickness can't touch it. A bad life can't touch it. Like at, at most you may have to suffer 70, 80 years in this life. But in the end you have got it made through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Like you have got it made y'all. We sit and daydream and fantasize about winning the lottery. And well, what would I do if I had that much money? You got the hope of something better than winning the lottery, my friends. The riches of heaven given to you. And it's a, it's a ticket that's already been purchased. And it already has the winning numbers on it. I mean, it's, it is ready and it is undefiled, stored and waiting in heaven for us. And Peter says, I see this inheritance. I see that winning ticket through the resurrection of Jesus. See, think about what that meant for Peter. And this, this is important. This is important. Think about what the resurrection meant for Peter. You know, there's some scholars that say, like, so Peter denied Jesus three times, you remember. He's going to the cross. He sees him being arrested. Jesus is, Peter denies him three times. Some scholars will say that he didn't deny him three times because, of, because he was afraid. I mean, Peter was a savage, y'all. Like I said in the beginning, he could skin a deer and he could run a trot line and a country boy can't survive. He would have... He would have fought to the end. He cut a dude's ear off in the Garden of Gethsemane. And somebody said, well, what was he aiming for the ear for? He was aiming for his head, son. You know what I'm saying? He was trying to take him out. He was ready to fight. He didn't deny Jesus because he was afraid. Scholars say he denied him because he was disappointed. He didn't believe anymore. He thought this Jesus was to raise up and take over and take control and dominate the Roman powers. And, and, and when he, he was disappointed in what was happening, and, and so he was shaken, and maybe there was some fear involved. I imagine that there definitely was some fear involved. Because now he thought, maybe, maybe I believed in all this for nothing. man. Maybe this was a total lie because I thought he was to be the man to take over and set things right. And now they're about to kill him. They've beat him half to death. He's about to be crucified. And he sees this. Here's what Peter sees. He, it was in the darkest moment of his life. He'd given up everything. He'd left his family, he'd left his career, his job to follow this man that is now hanging on the cross and he's in the greatest despair of his life, the greatest darkness of his life. But on Sunday when he peeked into the tomb and he realized that nobody was in that tomb, all of a sudden something popped up in his heart and he had a revelation that sometimes it's in the greatest moments of darkness that we experience in this world when God's plan is unfolding in the greatest way. Think about that. 
Because it could very much be, if God has a cross for your life, He says, take up your own cross. You know what He has on the other side of that cross? A resurrection. And here's the thing, there may be moments where you go through a Friday night and you go through a Saturday and it's the darkest moment of your life and you think, man, God is nowhere. Some of you go through difficult times and you think, man, God, where are you? How could you allow me to go through this? I'm feeling pain. I'm confused. You're not answering my questions and you're on that Friday night. You're on that Saturday. But see, you don't realize that on the cross when Jesus was hanging there brutally murdered, it looked like God was completely out of control. looked like he had no control in the world. Peter realizes after the resurrection that on the cross in the darkest hour when the clouds and the gloomy darkness had filled the earth, that was when God revealed himself to be the most in control. That he had planned it from the beginning to the end. That it had always been a part of his plan. Now, I don't know why God does the things that he does. He's, it, it's a mystery a lot of times. But could it be that what Peter is trying to say is the same way that that happened and the cross revealed God's power and omnipotence and sovereignty in, in, in all things, that ultimately it could be the same exact way in your life? That the trial and the suffering that you're going through, that right now, for whatever reason, we don't see it just yet because it ain't Sunday, but God's plan is unfolding as it should and He's doing something in you that you would not experience otherwise? Yeah. Consider that. This morning, because this is what Peter's trying to say that there's something beyond this. If you remember in The Lord of the Rings, I know Ty Finn will like it. Whenever Gandalf is supposed dead and he comes back, he had Sam, I believe it was, that said, Is everything sad going to come untrue? He said, I thought you were dead, Gandalf. He said, Is everything sad going to come untrue? Do you realize he's talking about the resurrection? But he says, one day for every person, there's going to be a Sunday where every sad thing comes untrue. And that explodes hope in the Christian life. But if we get too fixated on this world, on this being our home, this is why we're exiles, y'all. This ain't the land we're living in. This ain't the world we're living for. Our reward is in another place. And see, Peter saw in the cross and resurrection at the time that God seemed to be most out of control was actually the time when God was most in control. You talk about foreknowledge, right? Now, there's, there's, there's three types of movies, really, I think. There's like, there's like ha movies with happy endings. What, what kind of movies y'all like? I like the movies like where you have a key character, and he's a good character, and he totally dominates. I mean, like Superman type stuff, you know what I'm saying? Nobody can touch the guy. He's bulletproof. He dominates. But then there's movies with sad endings, and so for some reason it seems like there was a time in movies when it's like, it just ends sad, and you ain't got nothing from that, and it just ends like everybody dies. Man, that's not good. Nobody wants to watch that. It's terrible. But then there are movies where, like, the bad things that happen actually interweave to end up becoming the best thing that could happen. And this is how God works in our world. This is when we talk about foreknowledge. The word foreknowledge, when he speaks about that in the language, he says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, you are elect exiles in these places, according to the foreknowledge. The word foreknowledge in the Greek language is prognosis, literally. Y'all ever had a prognosis? You go to the doctor and the doctor says, well, we're giving you, we're giving you a month. I mean, this is, this is bad, it's really bad. Well, see, sometimes the doctors get it wrong. They don't have a clear prognosis. God has the clearest prognosis that there is. 
He knows everything from beginning to end and there is nothing that he would allow you to go through that ultimately he will not completely redeem and use for his glory and use to conform you to the image of Christ and use to get you a greater revelation of his love and his goodness and his power that can work through you. He will use everything because he has perfect foreknowledge and there's nothing that happens in your life that he doesn't already know and hasn't already made a plan. That's a good God. That's a good God. There's a movie... I'm, I'm not going to use this in the second service as nobody has heard about it. I talked to somebody about it the other day. Anybody ever seen that movie, Signs, with the weird guy's name in it, M. Night Shyamalan or something like that? Y'all seen that? Anybody give me a hand. Let me know. Oh, yeah. See, we're talking now. So y'all know that movie. This is the kind of movie that I'm talking about. And you need to watch it later if you haven't. But, but, but in the movie, what happens is... He has all these tragedies in his life. He's, he's a priest. He serves God. But what ends up happening is his wife dies. She's hit by a car while she's running, pinned up against a tree. He spends the last few moments of her life with her. And as she's fading out, he gets real bitter at God. He quits, he quits the ministry and everything because she's pinned up against the tree. And when he looks her in the eyes, the last thing that she says is she says, Tell Merle to swing away. And he thought it was just the random firings of her brain because... He thought, well, I, she, I didn't get anything meaning, meaningful from her at the end. It was just all meaningless. And then she died. And then his son has asthma, terrible asthma, and it's, and it's a burden to him, and it's a, it's a tragedy, terrible asthma. His daughter's got like some kind of OCD issue where she's putting, drinking water all the time, setting glasses of water everywhere. All this weird stuff is taking place in his life, and he's really aggravated, and he's mad at God. And, and then all of a sudden, guess what happens in the movie? There's an alien invasion. Amen. Like, powerful. Of course. Alien invasion. And this alien invasion comes in, and it just so happens that the thing that ends up protecting, like, like everything converges all at once. The alien breaks into the house. Merle is sitting there. He's a failed baseball player. A bat's hanging on the wall. He has a flashback to when his wife told him that. He looked at Merle. He said, Merle, swing away. And it's holding his son, who has asthma, pumping toxic gases into his nose, and he's breathing this stuff in. But guess what? His lungs are shut because he has asthma. And now it turns out that the water is what hurts the alien. So the alien bumps the table. The water burns him. And he says, Merle, swing away. He grabs the bat, busts the water, kills the alien. Amen. Right? Now you ain't even got to watch it. My point... My point being... My point being... Is that that's a perfect description of God's sovereignty. Like He has foreknowledge in how to weep Weave even your deepest pains and misunderstandings into that which wins a victory over the enemy. I'm telling you, that right there is, that'll preach. When When you get the gospel out of secular movies, baby, that's what I'm talking about. But what if you lived your life through the lens of the cross and the resurrection with the hope that in this life and the life to come, things will one day make sense and every sad thing will come true, and you'll see why you had to go through some sufferings, and you'll see why there were some trials there, and you didn't understand it all, but one day it all clicks, and it all makes sense, and God brings full redemption. God's got a prognosis, and there is suffering, but there's also, like, like uh, Forrest said last week, there's a due season. 1 Peter 1, 5 and 6, it says, Who by God's power are being guarded through faith. Right now you're being guarded through faith, protected 
Because God knows we go through some difficulties. God knows there's hard times. But you're being guarded through faith in Christ for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And he said, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. That word rejoice there is is intense rejoicing. And he's talking later even about a joy that is inexpressible and filled with joy. You ever been filled with so much joy that you, don't, you can't even speak? You know what I'm saying? <gasps> I remember when my little nephew one time got yogis for Christmas. I mean, he died. He just couldn't even speak. It was inexpressible and filled with glory. <laughs> Y'all didn't even know what yogis are. But grieved, you have rejoicing that is powerful, that is inexpressible. Then you have grief. And the word here is the same word that's used when Jesus was so sorrowful that it says he was sorrowful unto death in the Garden of Gethsemane. Like he was grieved beyond compare. It's an intense grief that crushes you, and it crushed Jesus. He was sweating great drops of blood. But here's the thing. Both rejoice and grieving right here in this passage are present tense verbs, which means that this rejoicing and this grieving can often happen at the same time in this life of following Jesus. That's a strange thing. What's that mean? It means walking with Jesus is often simultaneously great joy and deep pain. And that's confusing for us, isn't it? Because like, I didn't know you could have, you got to have one or the other. Like you got to have great joy or you got to have deep pain. But those two working together, I don't see that. And what Peter is saying, no, is the Christian life, especially when you live a life like he did, it is both deep pain and great joy. And here's the thing. Sometimes we try to push into joy as Christians. Y'all ever been around them Christians and they're just like, no matter what happens, oh, brother, I'm blessed, I'm blessed. I mean, the worst thing can happen. Do you realize that when God the Father demonstrated to Jesus, hey, you're going to have to go on the cross, you know what Jesus didn't do? He didn't say, oh, brother, we're blessed hallelujah going to the cross he didn't do that he went into the garden of gethsemane and he wept and he sweat great drops of blood and he cried and he grieved great tears because the human condition is often one of deep pain we have to carry a cross there's suffering in this world we live in a world that is 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 dominated by the powers of darkness And there's grieving, but he says in the midst of your grieving, there is also rejoicing and great joy at the same time. And Christians' pain and hurt can only go so deep, but because they know that on the other side of every pain and hurt that they'll ever go through, there is a resurrection and a God they serve that knows how to bring dead things back to life. And so there's something that changes and shifts. It's, it's kind of like a thermostat. So, so like the, the cold of suffering in your life actually drops down to kick in the heat of, of God's joy in your life. And here's the thing. Some of us, we don't, real, we don't recognize how to use trials and pain and suffering. We use it to get bitter. We use it to complain at God. We use it to get mad at God. And Satan uses it to drive us away from God and harden our hearts. But God says, no, if you will allow it to work right, the cold of suffering will actually drive you deeper into my presence where you can find a greater revelation of my goodness and my power and my spirit and my peace and me upholding you when you can't uphold yourself. And when you push into that, you have a revelation of God that surpasses all of your circumstances in your life. And you say, this is better than if I'd never went through the trial in the first place knowing God the way that I know him now is better than if I never went through the trial in the first place this is why in verse 7 he says so the, the, the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes 
though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So he's saying, he's saying that God is actually allowing some of these trials to purify your faith. He talks about it with gold. So like gold, when it's heated up, the dross and the impurities will rise to the surface so that they can scrape the impurities off and the gold becomes even purer because of the fire that it went through. He says in the same way your faith, like gold, when it's put in fire and tested, the impurities of your faith and where your faith is misplaced rises to the surface. Somebody on the prayer call yesterday morning said, you know what, I go through this difficult time and, and I get so tore up. And when I go through this difficult time and get so tore up, what I realize is I don't trust God. Anybody amen me, right? Like you go through a hard time and what it reveals is the areas in your life where you just don't actually trust God. And then you come to this realization, why am I worried sick? Why am I tore up? And God puts a finger on it and says, I need your faith to be strengthened in that area because you don't yet trust me. And if you went through this life trusting the power of health or you went through this life trusting in money or you went through this life trusting in your career or trusting in your family, well, you'd never get to know me the way that you need to know me. And he says, I want to produce a faith in you that is so strong that nothing that comes can shake you. And if pushed to the limit, you'd be willing to lay down your life the same way that I was because you trust in a father who raised you from the dead. Now, this is a powerful word. This goes beyond American Christianity, does it? Nobody expects these things to happen in our life. But have you ever really had your faith tested? Have you ever really had it tested? Peter experienced this. And here's the thing. Peter experienced it, and that's why he's talking to them. He said, boys, I've went through this. Jesus even said, Peter, Satan has desired to sift you as wheat. There's a trial that's coming. As a matter of fact, I'm going to allow Satan to test you. I'm going to allow him to tempt you. I'm going to allow him to do a work because I have prayed for you that your faith will stand strong and be restored. And what Peter gets to realize, even though he went through that trial, he understands that 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 trial that he went through, on the other side of it, what he got to experience was the love of Jesus for him and restoration, that his failure is not the end. That his failure doesn't mean, hey, I'm done with you. He got to experience the love of, of Jesus Christ and the restoration that Jesus brings. And then he got to experience the fact that even when I fail, this God will still use me and send his spirit to fill me. And I'll proclaim the same gospel boldly so that 3,000 people can be saved in a day even when I was afraid to, to, to say his name before. So he can remove it. He can change everything. And Peter got to experience that even when you go through these trials, God's up to something. That's greater than you recognize and realize. I read something this week that was really interesting. In John 11, 5 and 6, watch this. It says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. I read that and I thought, So he loved Martha and his sister. Lazarus, their brother, is dying. And he loved them, but instead of healing Lazarus, He stayed two more days and let him die. That don't compute to the natural mind. If you love me, Jesus, you come and you heal my brother. But instead it says, no, he loved them, so he let him die, and he stayed two more days. Why? Because he loved them so much that he realized that if he just went and healed their brother without revealing himself as the resurrection and the life, their hope would be in something that could only be given in this life, and they wouldn't get a revelation of who Jesus is in the afterlife. And he said, because I loved them so much, I had to do something 
to get their faith and their hope rooted and anchored in something beyond the circumstances of this life. I had to reveal to them that I am the resurrection and I am the life and that this world, that this life that you're currently living is not about what God can give to you in the here and now. Man, that's a hard one to swallow. Like, I, I'll be honest with you. I'm still praying for things that God can give to me in the here and now. Anybody amen me? Like, that's a good prayer. But he's saying if you put your hope in that, it'll let you down. And when your faith gets tested, you may have even the potential to fall away. But if your faith is rooted in something beyond that, see, the greatest act of love that God can give to us is not a material blessing. The greatest act of love that God can give to you is not a child. The greatest act of love that God can give to you is not a family. It's not more money. It's not a better job. It's not a better career. It's not perfect health until you're 95. That's not the greatest act of love of God towards you. The greatest act of love of God towards you is when He gives you Himself and He reveals everything that He is to you. So that you can know him more intimately than ever before. The goal of this life is not to have the perfect, flawless American dream. The goal of this life is to know God. This is eternal life, he says, that you may know me. Joy inexpressible does not come from God's blessings. Happiness comes from God's blessings. When God gives me the job I want or a new, some more money or a new car or something, hallelujah, Lord. Woo! Woo! All that. <laughs> Nobody really comes and shouts the house down and praises the Lord and gives a testimony and a praise report whenever they just say, you know what, I just got a revelation of the fact that honestly these things mean nothing. Nobody ever gets up and testifies about that. That, that honestly at the end of the day, all of these things and all the blessings that I have in my life, they mean nothing, but I have a revelation of who God is. I know Him. I know Him. He's clear to me now. None of this stuff means anything. All the things of the world become strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. And He's won a victory over it all. Verse 7, He says, So the detested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, I read several commentaries on this. And they say... A lot of them say that the praise and the glory and the honor is not the praise and the glory and honor that we give to Jesus. It's the praise and the glory and the honor that Jesus gives to us on the day of judgment. And he says that all of a sudden your faith is purified and comes to fruition and he's the author and the perfecter of my faith and he's doing something in my life so that when I stand before him, I receive praise and glory and honor from Jesus and he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. Your faith, you've allowed it to, to be grown into something that otherwise it couldn't have been. And I've perfected this thing in you. And here's the thing. Peter looks forward to this because here's what he's saying. Peter used to be really affected by the opinions of others. How affected are you by the opinions of others? Like, I still wrestle with that. I want people to give me the praise and the glory and the honor do my name. Amen. I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm not a heretic, right? I'm kidding. But what we, what, that's what we live for, right? Our image. Our image. I can't stand. I can't, I can't imagine anybody looking bad at me. And you know that why, this is why so many people will capitulate to this world system. Because they'll get a pat on the back from the world. And they won't be looked at as 
hateful or bigots or anything like that. They'll just capitulate to the rest of the world and get a pat on the back. And most people, because they love the opinions of others, what Peter is saying is, I don't care if the world rejects me. I don't care if I never become anything in this life. I don't care if I'm ever honored or respected because I live for the glory and honor and the praise of one man, and his name is Jesus Christ. And if he says that I'm worthy and he says that I'm value, and he says, man, that is amazing, and he says, well done, good and faithful servant, then who am I? to care about the opinions of some weak earthlings. Why should I care about your opinion if his is the only one that I'm living for? And this is what he says, it's going to be revealed at the glory and the honor and praise of his name. Verse 8 and 9, it says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. It's about him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with that joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. See, he doesn't say the outcome of your faith is a new BMW or a better job or more money or the door being opened or your family being just like you want it to be. That's not the outcome of your faith. The outcome of your faith is the salvation of your souls first and foremost. You may go through some difficult times and some seasons, but the outcome of your faith goes beyond what you can receive in this life it goes beyond the circumstances of this life and he says though you've not seen him you love him you don't just love the things that he can give you and you believe in him you don't just believe in the things that he can give you in this life and that's a big big difference because oftentimes we can get caught up in what God will give us instead of God himself you know, there's, there's two places, really, that this faith can come from. And Peter says it's from the resurrection. And the resurrection, having seen Jesus raised from the dead, is what caused a major transformation in his life. And here's the thing. Eusebius, in church history, tells us that the day before Peter was crucified, okay, he was crucified probably about a year or two after he wrote this letter. He wrote 1 Peter, he wrote 2 Peter. A year or two later, 67, 69 A.D.-ish, he was crucified. The day before he was crucified, they took his wife off to be crucified. And whenever she was walking off to be crucified, he's shackled up, he said, Beloved, remember Christ. And he told her, and he watched her be crucified. The next day, he sits and sleeps on that that night. The next day, he won't renounce his faith. And this is what Eusebius says, they take him to the cross to be crucified and he begs them, crucify me upside down. I'm not worthy to, be, to, to die like my Lord. And they turn him upside down and crucify him upside down. The blood draining down to his head and he experiences that death. But see, what gave, that kind of, what gave a man that kind of hope to be willing to go through suffering and intense persecution like that? It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He knew on the other side of that there was a life to come. And it became real for him because if imagine yourself in that scenario. Your wife going to be crucified. All you got to do is renounce your faith. Capitulate to the empire. Say what needs to be said. Say what culture is telling you to say. Give in to the gods of this age. And all of a sudden he says, no, remember Christ and go into this place. Because like I said before, you can get into a place where... Really, what you're serving God for is not God himself. What you're serving God for is what God can give you. And if he doesn't give you what you want when you want it, you get aggravated at God and you get bitter and angry at God. And I'm telling you, he may not give you what you want, but he will give you exactly what you need if you're willing to submit to him and follow him. And that's where God's calling us. Here's where I'm going to finish up. 1 Peter 1, verse 10 through 12. 
It says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicated. When he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So there's a reality that even angels in heaven who see the glory of God, they long with an intense obsession to behold the gospel. And here's the thing. They behold this gospel, and you and I, even though we go through this life and we have the questions, I remember when I was in college, I was listening to these atheists, and, and I was converting to Christianity, and when I did convert to Christianity, I start listening to these atheists, and they start asking these questions over and over about God. Well, if God's good, then why do children suffer? And if God's good, why does these bad things happened and I said you know what those are all of my questions but that doesn't make me an atheist because I look to the cross and God tells me to fix my my eyes on something beyond just the circumstances of this world that I see and look deeper into something and fix my eyes on the gospel of Jesus Christ where he went to the cross and died for me because I'm a broken sinner in need of a savior and he revealed a kingdom from heaven by healing the sick and raising the dead and casting out demons to say this is not the way that it should be but I've come to bring restoration in your life now and when I come back the second time I will renew all things but for a very short time if you will repent and not follow this world, but instead follow me, I'll give you a new heart and I'll put the power of my spirit in you and you can be on mission with me to walk as I walked and you can let God live through you to bring transformation in this world now. And if you see that, these are things that angels long to look into. They long to look into this reality that we've got a short time here on this earth. And no matter what kind of pain, what kind of suffering we go through with the short time that we have, we can live it all for the glory of God. You won't ever have another chance to worship God in your suffering because in heaven there ain't going to be none. You won't ever have another chance to pray for sick bodies and get, through, and get through this life of difficulty without complaining because in heaven there won't be nothing to complain about. You've got a short span of time to live for the glory of God and to endure suffering and trial rooted and grounded in faith in Christ because He's going to raise you up on the other side of this thing. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever. There's some things that I'm, not, that I'm just not going to know. But when I look to the cross, my mouth is shut. And I say, God, there's some things I'll never know. But it's okay because I believe you died on the cross for me and you were raised again from the dead. I'm going to finish with this quote. Tim Keller says this. He says, one of the most startling passages in the Bible to me connects the magnificence of angels with the gospel. Angels are incredibly majestic and powerful beings living in God's eternal presence. Yet there is something that has happened on earth that is so stupendous that even these immortal beings experience the persistent longing to look into these things. What are these things that could possibly and consistently consume the attention of God-fixated creatures? The answer is the gospel. The angels never get tired of looking into the gospel, and that means there's no end to gospel exploration. 
There are depths in the gospel that are always there to be discovered and applied not only to our ministry and daily Christian life, but above all to the worship of the God of the gospel with renewed vision and humility. The underlying conviction in my preaching, pastoring, and writing is that the gospel, this eternally fascinating message craved by the angels, can change a heart, a community, and a world when it is recovered and applied. See, the gospel isn't just for you to live your best life now. It's to get anchored in the life to come and to live for the glory of God the Father in the now. To be filled with His Spirit. To turn from sin. To be saved. There are people that God wants to use you to reach. Amen? I want you to bow your heads with me this morning. Let's just take a minute right here just to pray. I want you to consider what the Lord's doing in your life. And I want you to consider, you know, we got, we're baptizing four people uh, next service. And... And I'm, just, I'm always grateful when God is doing something in people's hearts. But I want to give, I always like to give people an opportunity. I don't know if you know the Lord, if you are saved, if you've confessed faith in Jesus and turned from your sins and decided, man, I need, I need a hope that is beyond what I'm dealing with. I need Jesus to do something in my heart. I want to be saved. If that's you this morning, I want to pray for you. And just as, just as an indicator, would you just raise your hand right now and say, that's me. I, I, I want to give my life to Jesus. Today is the day. I don't want to resist it any longer. That's me. Anybody in here, just raise your hand let me know. Anybody at all? Hallelujah. For the rest of us, I want us to just pray for a minute that God would do the work that he needs to do in our hearts in this moment so that we could be fixed on who he is. And Lord Jesus, we don't just want what you can give us. We want to know you. And we want our hope in this world to be fixed in something. We need a reference point beyond currently what we're going through. But Lord, for people that are currently suffering and in pain and questioning things that they've dealt with, I pray, Lord, that you would minister to their spirits this morning. You would heal their hearts. You'd bind up every wound. And you would reveal your goodness and your love to them in this moment, Lord Jesus. Do your work in their hearts and in their lives, and fill them with your Spirit, God, so that they can be used for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to stand to your feet. Let's just take a few minutes here to respond to the Lord. If you want to come up for prayer, listen, if you really are going through a trying time right now, seriously, and you, you just be like, I have dealt with some suffering, I'm under a lot of burdens, I would love for you to come forward and let us pray for you. I believe in the power of prayer. So if that's you... Feel free to come forward, come out of your seat, come up front. And let us pray for you real quick. For the rest of you, if you want to come around this altar and pray, let's just take a moment to worship. Let's take a moment to respond to the Lord. This altar is open. Don't be afraid to move. Something happens when, God, when you move. God responds when you respond. Let's take a moment here to worship. Thank you, Lord.